D.L. Moody, a very famous evangelist in the 1800s. In fact, he started uh, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, a very famous uh, Bible Institute. He would tell a story that I read once. It was a very moving story of a father who had a very, very ill son. had been ill for quite a while. He came home from work one day, and his wife was weeping. And she told him the report that the doctors had seen the son and that there was nothing they could do and that more than likely the little boy would die that very night. The father was deeply troubled and he went into his room, the boy's room, and he knelt right beside his little son, hugging him. And he said, Johnny, do you know that you're not going to live? Little boy looked at his dad and replied, no. Is this death that I feel, Daddy? Will I die tonight? Yes, came the somber reply. Little boy unexpectedly smiled. And he said, Daddy, that means I'll see Jesus tonight, won't I? Yes, you will, son. And with that, his father broke down and was weeping. His son touched his arm and said, Daddy, don't cry. I'm going to Jesus. And you know what? I'm going to tell him that ever since I remember, you and mom always prayed for me. What a message to take to Jesus. You have prayed for me. You know, prayer is powerful. The scriptures constantly speak about the power of prayer. You know, prayer changes the course of history, and it can rewrite yours. No wonder the scriptures devote so much attention to the teachings on prayer. In fact, the entire book of Psalms, all 150 of them, are a collection of the prayers of God's people throughout the ages. Psalm 46 has these really beautiful words, be still and know that I am God. It's not easy to be still today, is it? To take time to be in the presence of the Lord. Life just seems to be getting busier and more chaotic than ever. Do you ever feel like you're on the treadmill of demands and schedules and deadlines and commitments and your life is just one calendar event after another? You can hardly catch your breath, let alone be still. It's difficult to practice the discipline of prayer. To be still before God just doesn't happen. It just won't instantaneously happen in your life. Not at all. Scripture is very clear that prayer requires two things. Commitment and practice. Anybody who wants to be good at anything has to have those two, correct? I mean, (laughs) you want to be a good student? 
commitment and practice. You've got to do the work. A good athlete. You know, in your music, commitment and practice. The same thing goes for our prayer life as well. Dr. Martin Luther, in his small catechism, addresses this issue, and I'd like you to take your hymnal and open with me to page 327. So Luther's small catechism, and this is section 2. And I'm going to be referring to this in a little later on, so you can just keep that open after we look at this. But on page 327, you'll notice in the second part of, the, uh, of Luther's catechism, his second section is entitled Daily Prayers, 327. And then he goes on and he gives us suggested daily prayers for morning prayer and for evening prayer, and then asking a blessing and returning thanks during mealtimes. What Luther is teaching here is anchoring the rhythm of our daily life as we open our day in prayer and as we close our day in prayer. And then the meals that we celebrate, either alone or with family or with friends, we offer prayers of thanksgiving and blessing. I want you to notice that under the morning and evening prayers, he has some instructions there. After having the invocation of, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Luther then says these things. He says, then kneeling or standing, repeat the creed, that's the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And then he says, if you choose, you may also say this little prayer. And then he offers these wonderful prayers for morning and evening. And then look at how he concludes, especially in the morning. Then go joyfully to your work, singing a hymn like that of the Ten Commandments or whatever your devotion may suggest. What Luther is doing is he says, you know, our, our, our daily life of prayer needs to be anchored in those two things, the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, because in those two teachings is the entire compendium of the Christian life. Now, this last fall, those of you who are here, I preached a, a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed and the importance of the Creed in our life, in our life of faith. This Lenten season, we're going to spend weekends looking at the Lord's Prayer this is the very prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. Now, this prayer is found in two places in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, we heard that just a few moments ago, and also in the Gospel of Luke, when the disciples of Jesus say, Lord, teach us to pray, and he teaches the Lord's Prayer. What is very interesting in the Gospel of Matthew, the one I read for you today, is that he prefaces his his instruction, his teaching, his, basically he gives the church the Lord's... He, he prefaces it with three very important principles of the discipline of prayer. The first one that Jesus says is that prayer needs to be personal, all right? Personal. And, and how he puts it is like this. Go into your room and shut the door. Now, sometimes we can't go into the room. Sometimes we can't shut the door, literally. But what he's saying is you've got to shut off your mind. You have got to get away from all of the distractions for a moment and think of how many distractions we have in our lives. 
Jesus is saying, carve out some point of time that you don't have any distractions. Make it personal. Because you cannot carry a conversation on with a good friend by trying to carry on multiple conversations with people all around you and listening to everybody else. You need to devote yourself. That's what the Lord says. Prayer has to be personal. The second thing that he teaches us is that prayer needs to be authentic. What I mean by that is real. It's got to come from the heart. The Lord says this, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. Don't keep babbling on, thinking that because of your many words you're going to be heard. As if somehow the more words we have, and especially those nice religious words, that somehow we can convince God what we need and want. The Lord says, be mindful of what you're saying and avoid the cliches that can become just mindless chatter. <laughs> I think of a fifth grade boy who took a test on state capital, okay? And I saw him outside the classroom. I said, what are you doing? He says, Pastor, I'm praying that God could make Detroit the capital of Michigan. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's not... That is not authentic prayer, okay? I said, I don't think God's going to answer your prayer the way you want it, okay? The psalmist says this, pour your hearts out to the Lord. Pour your hearts out. You know, sometimes the Apostle Paul says, we don't even know how we should pray, but actually with groans and sighs, sometimes we just come to God and we're just crying. Have you ever done that? I certainly have. You don't even have words, but you just stand in the still presence of the God and you open your heart up to Him. Talk to Him as a close and dear friend. So prayer has to be personal. It has to be authentic. And the third thing that Jesus says is prayer needs to be purposeful. Purposeful. The Lord says this, when you pray, Pray like this. And then he gives us one of the greatest treasures. He gives us the very prayer. The Lord's prayer. This becomes the model prayer. It is the great gift to the church and to every Christian. Coming from the very lips of Jesus himself. And so this prayer above all as Luther teaches in the daily prayer, should be prayed at least twice a day. But let me put it like this. Can you ever pray the Lord's Prayer mindlessly? I hate to tell you, but I have too. That's why it has to be purposeful when we pray. That's why it's personal, authentic. Well, because this prayer has been so important in the history of the church, Catechisms going back to the very early fathers of the church, catechisms would speak about the Lord's Prayer and its meaning. And Martin Luther does the same thing. And turn with me now, just a few pages ahead, uh, to page 323, where in the third chief part of the uh, small catechism, Luther uh, basically takes this whole thing and he looks at each of the petitions. He has the introduction and then all of these petitions that he goes through and says, what does this mean for us? And so today, we're just going to look quickly at the introduction and the first petition. 
in the, in the introduction is how we are introduced to God, if you would, our Father who art in heaven. And let's read uh, the words together after what does this mean. Together, with these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that He is our true Father and that we are His true children so that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask Him as dear children ask their dear Father. Now, you know, if you look at that, that's the first thing that Jesus teaches us is about our relationship to God and our relationship with one another. That we are part of a family. Think about that. So he teaches us to pray, our Father. He does not teach us to pray, my Father, but our Father. Thereby reminding us that each of us has to have a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father, but we don't have exclusive claim on Him We are part of a a broad family. And that every time we pray this prayer, we pray it in unison with all Christians of all time. So think about that in this Eucharist. When we are standing in prayer and we are praying the Our Father, we stand there with our saints, with all of our loved ones who have gone before us. We are there with all of the voices praying this prayer. Wow. God shows no favoritism and no partiality. We all stand as beloved sons and daughters before the Father in heaven. You know, liturgically, some people say, well, why don't we kneel? You know, we've been kneeling for the consecratory prayer, you know, for the the blessing of the bread and wine that the Father would bring the very body and blood of Christ into that bread and wine. We pray that, we're kneeling, but then we stand. Why do we do that liturgically? Because at that point, you see, all of us now are praying in unison. We are all now the sons and daughters. We, the Father has gathered us around the table of His Son, and it is through His Son that we have a gracious Heavenly Father. Because we're told that the Father so loved us that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, to come among us. And in that beautiful hymn that we sang, I know it was difficult, but He came to breathe our poisoned air, to drink for us the despair. And He drank it to the very end of the cup. And He died our death. But He was raised again on the third day, and He restores to us life. And that's why we stand in all boldness and confidence before our Father, knowing that He hears us because of His Son. Jesus teaches us God is not some impersonal force. He's not some cosmic force of the universe. Not at all. He's a personal God, and He teaches us to call Him Father. A term of endearment. Do you realize that Jesus, who would speak Hebrew, Aramaic, that when he would use the word Father in the Scriptures, he would say Abba. Abba. And you know what Abba is? It's a Jewish term of endearment. It's what little kids would call, because the formal word for Father is Ab. Okay? 
but little children would say, Abba, which means Daddy. A term of deep affection and love. And what's so fascinating is that Paul, you heard Paul in that reading I just shared with you from Romans. Paul says these words, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, we don't have to be afraid of God anymore. No, but you have received the spirit of adoption as beloved children by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father. What he's saying is you have been adopted into the family through the blood of his son. You are his sons and daughters. You are loved. And you can come, as Luther said, with all boldness and confidence and know he hears us. You know, one of the most beautiful images I think that Jesus has ever given to us of our Heavenly Father is in the story he would tell of the prodigal son. A son who abandoned his father, disgraced him totally, wished him dead, and lived a life as if he was dead. And yet one day, his father, who was always there, on the porch of the house, waiting for his son to come back, sees that, that wayward son now in the distance approaching. The father doesn't turn his back and close the door, but he gathers up his garments and he runs through the streets of the city and he embraces his son and he kisses his son. That's the father that we have who loves us and who wants us to come to him and who, when we are repentant and ask for forgiveness, doesn't turn his back on us ever, never. That's why Jesus in the first petition then teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name. He teaches us about how we are to honor God in our life with a holy life. Look at what Luther teaches us. Let's read. What, what does this mean together under the first petition? God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. Now, how is God's name kept holy? Let's read. God's name is kept holy when the Word of God is taught in its truth and purity and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this heavenly Father. You know, think of the power of a name for a moment. Names represent people. Names conjure up images. When I say Elvis Presley or Adolf Hitler or Tom Brady, think of what comes to mind with each of those names. What they've done, who they are, what they represent. Names are very powerful. You know, name dropping, name dropping, very important in business really is. As, uh, you know, my grandfather, who was a, uh, a Ford dealer and a very successful one, he'd always remind me, he says, it's not what you know, it's 
who you know. <laughs> it really is true. I mean, you've got to know something. But I'll tell you what, name dropping can open doors that otherwise would be closed. Well, you see, God has given us His name. He has given us His name when we were baptized. The name of God imprinted in our lives forever, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is His gift. And as a result of that, we represent God. We represent our Father to all of those people around us. I'll never forget at times, you know, my kids, they would always say, well, everybody else gets to do that. Everybody else does that. And I said, well, you're not everybody else. You're a shawhorn. Well, we're Christians. And we represent by the integrity of our lives and who we are. Our Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. We don't make God's name holy. What we are called to do, as Luther teaches us, is to know God's name, which is to know his word in truth and purity. And not to, as Luther said, whoever does not teach or live according to that word of God profanes his name. George Gallup, a statistician and who researched uh, American Christianity, once had this quote. He said, most Americans who say they are Christians do not even know the basic teachings of the Christian faith and of the Bible. They do not act significantly any different than non-Christians in their daily life. Wow. Now, if that characterizes our Christianity, then the name of God is not being kept holy among us. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed in the upper room, he has a very long kind of conversation with his disciples. And in John 15, he makes the connection between the Word of God and the life of prayer. He says this, if you abide in me, in other words, you are living in me, and my words are living in you. In other words, the, the Word of God, the words of Christ are saturating our life. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Wow. Because we are living in the Word of God. We want to pray according to that Word. And then he goes on to say this, by this my Father is glorified. In other words, honored. This is how you keep God's name holy, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, as Luther beautifully teaches us, and so simply, that we're asking the Spirit of God to deepen in us his understanding of the Word of God. To draw us closer to a walk with Jesus Christ so that we honor Him with our bodies and with our minds, with our spirit, so that others who see you, who see me, they can see the hope that I have, the hope you have, who I belong to and who you belong to. And what is most important in my life? That's what it means to hallow 
God's name. Pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, help me to honor your name above all things. Amen.